Hello and welcome to season two, episode 17, episode 69 overall of the Motown Philly podcast. I'm Tim Golden here with my co-host. What up, y'all? It's your boy, Jason Hall. What up, though? What up, though, is that wonderful Detroit colloquialism. Jason Hall is the Motown in Motown Philly from Detroit, Michigan. Yours truly, Tim Golden, is the Philly in Motown Philly from the city of brotherly love. And Jason and I are excited, beyond excited tonight, to uh, be recording this episode, one which is very timely because the nation will be reflecting on the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, next week and as this podcast uploads you're going to be in for a real treat but before we get into tonight's subject with our special guest jason the gratitude game stays tight tell our listeners how grateful we are and tell them why we are so thankful here at motown philly man yes 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 tim the gratitude game stays tight Super excited today. We have something special in store for y'all on this particular podcast. So let's get into it. Super happy, super grateful for just another day. Uh, having all the listeners that chime in, we had some really good feedback from our last episode that we did on last week from some of our day ones that reached out to us and let us know about things that we did or that were really cool. So grateful for the community that we're building, grateful for our, our guests and guest hosts that are with us on today. You guys are in for a treat. Um, just be grateful, guys, as you wake up each and every day, each and every morning for the good and for the bad. All things are working out for your good. When you are grateful, it helps you see what is positive. It helps you see what is possible. All the possibilities in your life can be created today because you are thinking and working to that end. So, you know, gratitude game stays tight. It does indeed stay tight, Jason. Tighter than a pair of Speedos on Sumo. (laughs) That's the first time I ever rolled that one out. That is the first one. We'll take it. I'm no Cat Williams, that's for sure. I'm not a stand-up comedian. But anyway, we're excited tonight because we have with us a very special guest and... For our listeners who have been clamoring for her return, you should know that joining is the lovely, spectacular, stupendous, intelligent, witty, charming Miss Vita Starr is back with us tonight to co-host this special episode in which we have a guest with us. You know, the nation is about to reflect on the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And one of the things that I lament, and Jason, you and I have talked about this before, is that so many of us celebrate his legacy in ways that I don't think Dr. King would have wanted his legacy to be celebrated. And uh, a recent book has been written It's called The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. And the author who we have here with us tonight is Dr. Hajar Yazdiha. She is an assistant professor of sociology and faculty affiliate of the Equity Research Institute at the University of Southern California. 
Dr. Yazdihaz research examines the politics of inclusion and exclusion as they shape ethno-racial identities, intergroup relations, and political culture. And again, she is the author of the 2023 book, The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement, published by Princeton University Press. Join with us in welcoming to the Motown Philly podcast and listening audience, Dr. Hajar Yazdiha. Hajar, or Haj, I believe. Yes. Welcome to the Motown Philly podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. This is such a treat to be with y'all tonight. It is so good to have you with us. Uh, what what I would like to do, Paj, if it's all right, is start off just by asking a basic question. And then Vita and Jason, feel free to jump in. We want this to be an organic conversation. Paj, uh, what was it that motivated you to write this book? Because I have to tell you, as I read your book, I found my own voice in the book screaming, thinking, I've been thinking this, but I just have never said it. Because we, we're going to have a lot of celebrations with Dr. King, yes. a lot of celebrations of him. And sometimes I'm not so sure they're all together accurate. So mm. what struck me about your book was how, I mean, here at Motown Philly, we're all about communication, connection, and community. And one of the aspects of community that we like to speak of here and communication and connection is that it be authentic. Mm -hmm. And there's so much inauthenticity around the celebration of Dr. King's birthday. So could you could you elaborate on it and elaborate on your work and tell us what it was that motivated you to write such a compelling book about Dr. King's legacy? Yes. Well, thank you for the kind words. Thanks for reading the book. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was in graduate school in the 2010s, you know, during Obama's presidency, watching the rise of the Tea Party and all of this reactionary politics to our first black president. And this is a moment where you start hearing a lot of language about reverse racism against white people. There's this growing perception that Obama hates white people. And so there's all this white victimhood going on. And what I keep hearing is Dr. King's words getting invoked to say that King himself would be ashamed of us for talking about race, for having race conscious policies like affirmative action. And that for me is the spark where I start saying, how do we get to this point? We're on a main stage, right? Not even thinking about fringe actors. We have folks talking about King in ways that are so decontextualized, so disingenuous. So that was the part that for me required some digging because I wanted to understand the actual trajectory and that's where I think maybe they're offering something new because I actually think you know, what you're saying, I think a ton of people have noticed this, right? Like this is such a prolific phenomenon. People co-opting King, misappropriating him. You know, Cornell West has called it the Santa classification of King. Uh, you know, there's folks have written about the domestication of King. So people have been talking about this for a really long time. And I even say in the book that, you know, black activists have been saying this for decades. King's own family has been fighting this for decades. 
But that what I do in the book is try to put the puzzle pieces together. And so it's 40 years of tracing these invocations and these misuses of King and showing that actually they build on each other and that it's not just random, but it's actually part of a deeper political project. Wow. Vita? Yeah, I'm sorry. I was trying to unmute myself. I'm like, hurry up. Um, but <laughs> but I think that's the part that that struck me the most was the fact that it was part of a deeper political project. Because these are things that I feel like Black people talked about for a long time, at least in my family. And we, you know, it wasn't like it was, a, it was like a, it was obvious that something was wrong with the way that this message was happening around Mar Dr. Martin King's legacy. And how, because we could see these white people who clearly would not support King um, evoking his words, right? And we're offended by it, actually. It's common. Like, we're having this conversation um, openly, but you don't know this is a political strategy. Like, you don't have, like, we didn't, I don't think we were quite aware that that was the part that was also happening. And I think that's what struck me the most, that this wasn't an accident um, from, from the beginning. Um, as far as um, there being a Dr. Martin Luther King day in the first place was also part of a political strategy. I would say, in my opinion, it's part part of it was to pacify and the other part is to sanitize. And I think um, and now they're used and now I think the right wing is using it at their disposal. And another thing, and I feel like you would agree with this, it's, it's not just the right wing. The Democrats do the same thing. And it all of it boils down to let's even ignore the very tangible things that Dr. Martin Luther King was fighting for. And let's just focus on a bunch of frou-frou nonsense that just sounds good. that has nothing to do with workers' rights, has nothing to do with reparations, has nothing to do with equal access to opportunity, has nothing to do with that. We're just going to, you know, kind of, um, I won't even say whitewash, we'll say um, colorblinded, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? To, to kind of erase it. So I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm so happy you picked up on all of those points because I think that's actually a really important part. You know, the hook is that it's right-wing groups that have co-opted it. It fits this narrative we have about, you know, the growing right-wing moving into the mainstream, about the resurgence of white supremacy. But the book shows that, like you said, it's also the democratic establishment, right? It is these liberal Democrats who are really committed to kind of corporate America. It's the Obamas, you know, it's the Bidens and they're upholding the status quo. And so for them too, it's important to maintain a conception of King as somebody who's safe, who's not going to challenge our conception of power, right? And the idea that there's a natural order to it. So I, I think it, for me, it was like, you know, a disturbing finding, but also not particularly surprising because I think that had been a personal frustration with politics is you go into the polls feeling like you're voting for the lesser of two evils. And at a certain point, you start feeling like they're not really all that different. And I mean, I think it's because truly they do not tackle these deeper systemic issues, the triple evils that Dr. King talks about. We are not getting to the roots of systemic racism, the roots of capitalism, the roots of imperialism. So, you know, God forbid we actually took those on and continued the unfinished work. I mean, imagine what we could do. I, I, I would like to, to kind of interject what you know we thinking we're, we, what we're talking about as far as the political climate and 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 what your book brings out i must confess 
Hodge. I haven't read the book, but however, it's on the list, right? Uh, and I forgive but, you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I'm working to it. Um, but I have studied you. I, I've I've been to your socials and I've listened to things that you've said, and I'm very in tune into the conversation now. Um, the practical application of kind of what you're talking about in this political movement um, has like hit me full full circle today, or I felt some ramifications of it. I picked up my my 12 year old from from school today um and we have real conversations and um i let her know and she let me know hey like there's a holiday you tell me there's a holiday coming up uh this monday and what is the holiday layla and she said it's 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 martin luther king uh holiday and she kind of said it with this sense of exhaustion Mm. um and and almost with an attitude of saying we do this every year why do we have to keep talking about him and i'm like whoa 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 what (laughs) like like and and so i'm doing my best to kind of kind of keep my composure to be like um before before she said that she also said we outside of this day we don't really talk about him like it's not something that's brought up like we don't go there with of talking like he's brought up and then he's gone like and and i'm just like you're right he should be talked about more and it's not just about this holiday so it's like she feel maybe she feel i feel like she thinks she she feels how how it's placed in front of her and then taken away and like before that no one really mentions his name or really talks about his ideals true ideals and it is in a lot of way commercialized like i live in memphis tennessee the place where he lost his life was assassinated was murdered and in his in the backyard of that where my children go to school they're like yo is this dude who died for civil rights and 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 that's kind of how it is it was it was just kind of a sad like realization it's like like why do we have to talk why do we have to talk about him every year and i'm just and on top of that you know it throughout the year it, it like he's not brought in the light that he needs to be in order to have some real resonation to to the kids to let him know like who he is what he stood for why he why he existed or what was his purpose yeah and what you're saying really resonates because if we actually learned history in a way that helped us understand context, mm-hmm. then it would be a lot easier to make those analogies to present day. And mm-hmm. it wouldn't feel like it was so long ago. It wouldn't mm-hmm. feel like it's some relic of the past. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that story makes me sad. And at the same time, it doesn't surprise me because the way he's taught is also boring, right? We don't learn about just how high risk the civil rights movement was. I mean, when I teach my undergrads about the Freedom Riders and they see themselves in those kids, right? Putting their Mm -hmm. lives on the line. Totally. I think it shakes them because they realize that it wasn't just a movement that landed in the streets and then happened to be successful because its leader was really nice and friendly and everybody really loved him. Mm. It's disruptive. It's terrifying. People are dying. And I think that becomes such an important way, not just to build the suspense and the hype and, you know, get kids kind of into the story, but also for them to understand the stakes and that 
it can be replicated. And that is what it takes. It is not just about signing a petition or clicking like on something. You actually have to be willing to give something up. Yeah. There's so much that struck me about what you said, Jason. Like one, that she was so observant that she like it was able to recognize her own exhaustion with it. Like, you know, the fact that we only hear about him once a year. And the other thing that I think about is like, we only hear about him. <laughs> like We yes. don't hear about and I like what you just said, Haj, in regards to the context is also missing. Um, so I'd be willing, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing how you see the role of mythology when it comes to how we learn about history and um, why we, because, you know, this is a huge part of your book as well, why we learn about Dr. King in the way that we do. It's not an accident. It's not happenstance. Just like we learn nothing in education or in school by happenstance, right? There are people who sit around in a room and decide this is going to be in our textbooks. This is going to be in our curriculum. This, this is what our requirements are going to be. And these are based off of something, right? There's a goal in mind, right? There's a reason why mythology is used, whether you're talking about black history or anybody else's history. There's a reason why it's there. And I, I really would like for you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is the thing that fascinates me and keeps me up at night, right? Is this question of how you preserve history in a way that remembers it authentically, that remembers it with all its complexity, especially when the powers to be have a political goal to reproduce their own power, right? And so the most important thing for them is to maintain a story where they are legitimate. It you know makes sense that they're in power. It makes sense that we have this racial hierarchy. You know, racial inequality can be explained by individual failings. So to do that, you need to have a story of the nation that makes that sound you know right. Like that actually makes sense. And I think that's where a lot of the historical sanitizing comes in. And this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. I mean, this is all across the globe. Every nation sanitizes its history to uphold power. But I think what's so dangerous in the U.S. and what I write about in the book is that it builds this culture of willful ignorance. And this comes from the philosopher Charles W. Mills. And this is an idea where white people in particular cannot understand the world around them because they have chosen not to. They have chosen not to enmesh themselves in the histories and the context and the critical tools that would help them understand that their position is illegitimate and that it was built on the backs of Black Americans and Indigenous peoples. So I think that that question of, you know, memory and mythology, there's a part of it that will always kind of make sense to kind of uphold our heroes from the past and want to tell really rosy stories about where we've been and how far we've come. But I think what's so dangerous is that it tells the story of racial progress that doesn't actually bear out in the evidence. So, you know, I think when we tell a story about King where he ended racism, which is really the popular story. It's the one that the mainstream thinks about is like, you know, King ended racism. And so whatever racial inequality we're seeing now is the product of something else, something other than racism. So when we tell that story, I mean, we really run the risk of making it impossible to tackle those deeper problems. But what scares me, Jason's daughter is black. This is what black children are learning about their quote unquote heroes. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what scares me about it. This becomes our story and our mythology about our heroes. Oh, King wouldn't have wanted us, wouldn't have wanted us to march and shut down the freeway. And we know that's not true, right? This it's like it becomes this way of um 
keeping us at bay and trying to keep us in check. And that bob that's the part that bothers me. I don't have expectations of white people. I don't. I just I to have expectations of your oppressor to somehow magically switch that off is is to me almost ridiculous. Um, and, I, and, and most people won't say this. King also started to have that belief towards the end of his life. They won't mm-hmm. talk about that part, yes. but that's a whole. That, well, we can get to that later. But um, but my my point is just the fact that our black children are learning this mythology. I don't. I know why they would teach this to white children. But now that black children who go to black schools, black staff, are also being taught this same mythology. Yes, I mean that's such a good point, and it's part of the liberal establishment, right? The neoliberal project is that your goal, whether you are Democrat or Republican, wherever you are in the spectrum, your goal is to produce workers and workers need to buy into the idea of racial capitalism. So, I mean, this is part of the mythology that upholds that whole story. And it also, like you said, shuts down dissent, the kind of radical dissent, the kind of thing that King was trying to do with the poor people's campaign, you know, to get all sorts of people to come together at the grassroots and fight for a living wage, fight for a right to housing, fight for a redistribution of resources. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to think that his life was ended so short and what could have happened had he been able to proceed. But at the same time, you look back and he was so unpopular in that last year of his life. It's hard to say whether he actually would have been successful because we know that every form of power at that time was trying to shut him down. But, you know, you're right about the tragedy that black children don't even know I mean, many of them don't know just how radical he was. And it's funny because I was reading a very valid critique by one of my colleagues of my book. And she said that, it, you know, the book doesn't get at the fact that some of the newer Gen Z kind of black movements, like Movement for Black Lives, for example, have actually been built on positioning themselves against King's legacy of saying yeah. things like, this isn't your grandfather's civil rights movement. And I think that's such an interesting point because it does say something about how people see that, like the civil rights movement as a form of respectability politics. You know, they wore really nice Sunday finest when they were marching in the streets. And when we tell a story about, you know, disruption being very civil and peaceful and, you know, nobody ever actually did anything to upset anybody. When we have that mythology, it's really easy to think, well, we have nothing to learn from the civil rights movement proper. And I think that is such a shame. You know, things you you mentioned, Hodge, and Vita, I'm so glad you brought this up, Uh, this question of mythology. At at the core of the neoliberal project, and by the way, when we use this term neoliberal, we're talking about liberalism, not liberal as in liberal versus conservative, but liberal in a political philosophy that's interested in the protection of private property and individual rights, primarily. And so... At the center of the neoliberal project is a mythology about the power of the individual and about things that the individual can do on his or her own to facilitate their own success. And then that sort of spills over into uh, a sort of uncritical acceptance of Adam Smith's capitalism and his view that you know, you make money and you do it by yourself. And this is the way that we get ahead. And one of the interesting things about rhetoric is that whether it is political pundits on the far right or far left, or even the Supreme Court, we have a way of making King a colorblind King 
because colorblindness fits into the narrative of liberalism that we're all supposed to ignore 400 years of history uh-huh. and like the when Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation African Americans were automatically made equal right and that was certainly very far from the truth so if you think all the way back to Plessy versus Ferguson one of the things that the Supreme Court has done is they've seized upon this one line in Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion that the Constitution is colorblind and they've extrapolated from that this frankly asinine view that in constitutional law we're supposed to completely ignore history because the constitution is supposed to be colorblind and that goes hand in hand with the content of their character and not the color of their skin line from dr king's i have a dream speech that is probably the most hackneyed line in american rhetoric And one of the reasons why it's quoted so often is because whites, again, especially conservative whites, and and I I want you to talk about this too, Hodge. In your book, what's so powerful is you talk about how the colorblind narrative enables people in immigrant communities to position themselves in proximity to whites and buy into the false narratives about King and this idea that he was just about colorblindness. Of course, when Dr. King said that, he's speaking of the deep wounds from the American South and Jim Crow and black codes and lynching and racial terror and the denial of suffrage. But we don't get any of that in popular culture. Instead, what we get is a Ben Carson who will be the perfect spoke, spokesperson because he's black and he'll come out and he'll say, oh, that's not what Dr. King meant. And he'll speak at a prayer breakfast on Monday and everyone will clap and talk about how right he is. But I'm fascinated by a lot of my immigrant friends who either don't understand why there's a King holiday or have accepted a rhetorical version of King that enables them to position themselves squarely within the neoliberal narrative of the individual and coming up and making it on their own. And thus they're unconsciously sort of buying in to what white people are selling. Could you talk a little bit about that, Hodge? Yes, so many good points in there. I mean, I think for me, especially as an Iranian American immigrant, my parents were Iranian political refugees. I wasn't born in the States either. There's always been that question for me of where we see ourselves fitting in as non-white, non-black immigrants. And it's so easy to tell a story where we're somehow outside the story of race in America. We're somehow immune to it. And then we can tell a story where, you know, oh, it's just a coincidence we landed in all white neighborhoods and attended, you know, all white schools and rose up and tried to get into all white jobs, right? Oh, it's just a coincidence because it just happens to be the pathway to upward mobility in this nation. And it's like you said, it always has required positioning yourself against black people. And so in the book, when I'm talking about these well-meaning, you know, immigrant rights activists, and then there's another chapter about Muslim rights activists, they all have in their mind the idea that 
if they can take on this project of assimilation, which requires buying into the nation's story, then they can become part of the dominant group. And one of the really tragic realizations is that they just continually bump up against the boundaries of race because these are non-white immigrants. They do not appear white. They have names that signal they are not white. And for Muslims in particular, after 9-11, and this is something that my family experienced too, just being Middle Eastern, you realize your place very quickly. We had our neighbors of 15 years, my childhood home, turn against us. Folks that, you know, I had played with since I was little and you know, parents that we knew so well, cold shoulder, wouldn't even say hi. And then all sorts of kind of scary and odd things started happening to my parents and they ended up moving. You know, we moved from my childhood home. It's actually still a tragedy to me because, you know, you always want to go back home. I don't have a home to go back to. But, you know, that's all to say that it's the bumping up against boundaries that becomes a form of political awakening for immigrants, because that's when they realize that despite their best efforts, white folks are not going to let them in. They will give them crumbs. They will make them feel like you can hang out outside our circle. We will let you come within the house, but you can't come within this room. And you look at somebody like Nikki Haley, for example, who has completely bought in. You know, her whole shtick is to roll out the American dream story to say racism doesn't exist. Like, look at my parents. Look what, what they were able to accomplish. And yet Trump is still rolling out this birther conspiracy with her. And so there is nothing she will be able to do to get away from being Indian American. And I think, it, you know, those are the harsh realities that end up being so valuable for some folks, not Nikki Haley. But, you know, for the folks in the book who were well-meaning and realized assimilation is a story of anti-Blackness and it does not exist. And so using King in this way is harmful. And instead, we can think about a King that thinks about our interconnected network of mutuality, that thinks about how our fates are linked. And, you know, we have to come together. We have to build the coalitions because that's the only way to build power. So I, I kind of want to hit on some things because what you're saying is evoking a lot of emotions in me. And um, in regards to how we look at our movements as Black Americans specifically, I don't come from an immigrant family. Um, my family's African American, enslaved from this soil. Um, I feel like a lot of times you see immigrant groups benefit from the work of African-Americans and our movements, including the civil rights movement. And you might have the people who are like, well, just work hard and assimilate. And I do think Dr. King's legacy got pushed for that as well. But you do have activists who do, who are not assimilationists necessarily, who build their movements off of that saying, off of King's legacy, off of the civil rights movement and still are anti-black, right? And I'll even, I'll give you an example. You're in Los Angeles, you were here. Hopefully you are, I don't, know, I don't know if you've heard about the secret tapes that came out with the Latino council people and the head of the LA Fed. Um, and if you, for those who are listening and are not in LA, you may or may not have heard about it. The president spoke on it, many um, Congress people spoke on it, but there were these secret uh, tapes that came out where three Latino council members from LA city and a uh, LA Fed, the head of the union, were basically plotting on Black LA. And, you know, they were talking about 
one of the things they talked about is how they felt like black people in LA had too much power because we're only 8% of the population, but we have three seats on the city council, right? Um, and we've in the same seats we pretty much always have, but what people don't talk about is how we get those seats. How do we get political power? We didn't get it magically, right? The political, the, the little political power that we do have, and mind you, if I went into detail about how how little that power has even really gotten us, and most of which we live, most of us live in South LA. Um, we got that power through organizing. That's how we got the rights through getting out there, marching, um, going door to door to get those votes, right? And that is the, probably the same story all across the country, right? The, the political power that we got, we worked for, right? It didn't get handed to us. But these three Latino council were just talking smack. We got too much power. Um, they were literally plotting on how they were going to uh, redistrict, um, the, make sure that we didn't, uh, the, the, the blackest district, which is one of the districts that has the highest black population, did not get any economic assets. That was also part of the conversation, right? These same people, when you listen to a lot of their work, they were acting like they were partnering with black people, right? One of them had just spoken to a group about how they love black women, right? Um, another another one was talking about how important, you know, they had their, their, their movements were, movements that had basically replicated the black civil rights movement. And there are many groups that have done this. So this is just one example, right? We do all this work, they replicate our movements, and then we get spat on. That's the part that frustrates me. So it's not just those who are like, oh, I want to assimilate that are anti-Black. The reason why I want to point this out, just like I wanted to point out, it's not just the right wing that uses Dr. King's legacy, is because I think that's easy for Black folks to hear, because we, we, we can identify the anti, things that are blatant, right? We can, and we can identify the right wing. I don't think we're as... I don't think we're as um, vocal, at least, about calling out when other people who are supposedly more liberal are doing the same thing, even when as they're spitting in our face when they do it, right? When policies are being developed, right? If, you know, where that's hurting Black communities, you know, crime bill or anything else, but they're evoking Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy as they do it, right? Um, and I just, I just, so hearing you talk about that, it was just like, yo, it's kind of hitting me because it's like, how many times do we have these movements? How many times have we, we built the framework, the foundation other people benefit from? And in some cases more so than we do, we don't even benefit from affirmative action, but yet another immigrant group fought to get it, keep it out. Right. They're fighting against it. And we weren't even the ones benefiting from it. And if you remember most of the rhetoric around it was, there's a black kid at Harvard that don't deserve to be here. And I'm Asian and I deserve to be here. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's like the story of the DEI moral panic right now, right? And, you know, getting Claudine Gay out of the Harvard presidency. And at the same time, you know, it's like she was also just a kind of reproducer of the status quo too. And so I think the double-edged sword that you're, talking about is absolutely right because anti-blackness is baked into every aspect of society and so even those who think that they get it now right still have to actually grapple with what it means and that's why i said you know some of this true work of liberation for those of us in relative positions of power means giving something up and i don't think folks really want to internalize that 
And, you know, you're making me think, too, of the chapter on the Muslim rights movement. And this is one of the open questions that comes up at the end of the chapter is like, yes, they've had this awakening and they're building coalitions with black folks and brown folks to take on the carceral system. And it sounds really beautiful. But there's still this question where black Muslims are saying, hey, we show up for you in the streets to fight the Muslim ban. We show up for you to fight surveillance. But where are you when our black boys are getting killed? You are not showing up for us in the same way. And that is so real, right? And I think it's it's one of the big challenges of solidarity politics, the one that I really think about a lot because it is the one that keeps us from actually doing the deeper work. So, I mean, I'd love to hear what you all think about that. Well, you know what? Hodge, we're going to pick that up. This is something we do here. I got to take a little break. We got to promote our advice here on the Motown Philly podcast and we have an entrepreneur with us we're going to come right back to the conversation Jason is an entrepreneur extraordinaire has his hands in lots of different things and if you're an entrepreneur out there and you are looking to grow your business we want you to grow with us here at the Motown Philly podcast and advertise with us we have listening audiences all across the United States and major cities like New York Los Angeles and even overseas. We have some listeners in the UK. We have some listeners down under in Australia. I think one or two folks in New Zealand. So we're growing. And if you want to grow with us, please consider advertising with us here at the Motown Philly podcast. All you have to do is send us an email at Motown Philly community at gmail.com. That's Motown Philly community at gmail.com. We will send you a price list with all three of our advertising packages. And we guarantee that we will get you on air with us on our podcast being advertised so that everyone can hear about the wonderful work that you're doing as an entrepreneur with your business. Again, we're growing and we want you to grow with us. If you're interested, please send us an email at Motown Philly community at gmail.com. We're growing and let's grow together. Now, Haj, you were just making a very good point. And I'm going to ask if you can restate that. And I saw Jason was chomping at the bit. He looked like he was ready to jump in before we had to do our little commercial break there. So could you restate it? And then Jay, hop in and, and uh, let's, uh, let's continue the conversation. Yes, it's this question of solidarity politics. And if we live in a society that's fundamentally anti-Black, and the choices that we make as individuals aren't going to change that, then how do we engage in a true solidarity politics that takes on that systemic racism? I guess my, your question, like, it stimulates more questions. Um, as you, as you articulate it, my, my thought goes to I'm me. Sorry, that's, that's a hallmark of a good academic questions upon questions upon questions definitely um and i know and i appreciate it because me being uh who i am in my profession like it always thinks makes me think more deeply about what are we really communicating as, as when it comes to you know the premise of who we are at motown philly communication connection and community like those for us are the the rudimentary fundamental like 
kind of guidelines that gets us to community. That's all we're talking about here, but it starts with communication. And from what I'm hearing in the conversation, there's a, there's there's these awarenesses or awakenings that we are trying all to get to or share and come together to connect, to have some synergy so that we can create a more strong and healthy community. But it just sounds like there is a lot of, of course, miscommunication that doesn't allow the connection to really, the, the true earthy, if you will, connection to take seat that we create a, a really healthy community based on what we're what we're actually speaking about. Um, so there is this growing awareness of just having understanding what the what the political climate is doing with with the work of what Dr. King did for us. And as we're learning and understanding like, hey, that narr the narrative that he created and made sacred to kind of share to all of us has now changed and is changed has changed as we can see what happened to kids like my daughter. Um, and of course it's come to it's it comes through the adults too where my daughter is. It's just like how do we get to the idea of communicating well better? Uh, to get past the the ideas that you know things such as critical race theory doesn't doesn't take root or have true reasonable reasonable rational setting in our schools today. Like, how do we get to a point where we're communicating better and not just communicating at each other or past each other, so that we that Dr. King's old or 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 his his ways of 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 or methodologies of like teaching and what he wanted to give to us to have it just come through like to to now like how does it get there how do we communicate better so we can do the things that we should do um and really hold tight to the premise of what dr king was really trying to do like how do we get there i don't know that's the question it is, that is a question you know when i listened to you jason just now and i was thinking about has this question about solidarity politics. I'm thinking of how difficult it is to build coalitions. Coalition building is difficult because if it's a if it's a multiracial if it's a if it's a multiracial uh, coalition and it involves African Americans and immigrants, the the first roadblock is this problem of history, right? There's a unique history of African-Americans that lots of immigrants don't know. Mm. And, but what they do know, here's what they do know, and this goes to Hodge's point. They do know, A, they, they, a lot of them want to fit in with white people. And they typically come to a rude awakening that they don't. And then once they don't, the question is, have they positioned themselves with white people so much to the point where they don't even see black people themselves as being equal to them? And I, I've said this before, as an African-American, I mean, I have lots of immigrant friends, you know, from Africa, from the Caribbean, 
Jason and I have been part of a religious tradition where you have lots of West Indians and so forth. And they can go back. My, my friends from West Indies can go back to Jamaica and speak Patois. Mm-hmm. They can go back to Haiti and speak their Creole French dialect. Mm-hmm. My friends from Africa, from Zimbabwe, can go back to their villages and speak their language. I go to Philly. That's that's where I go, <laughs> right? That's right. home. And so there, there's all of this. There's a sense in which before a lot of immigrants come to the conclusion that whites are only going to let them so in so far. I've often heard a lot of hostility between immigrants and black Americans saying that, oh, you're ignorant. You only speak one language. You you know, you don't really have any unique culture. And the fact is, African-Americans do have a unique culture, right? They do have a culture that's uniquely their own. Dr. King came from that culture, right? Some of my friends in academic philosophy you know, are will be critical of certain thinkers because they say, oh, their focus is just on the United States. It's too narrow. Well, excuse me, but that's where I'm from. <laughs> I'm from the United States. And there's something about the African-American experience that is American, right? That demands an ongoing critical engagement with American institutions and uh, founding documents like the Constitution. And so that's how so much of African-American thought sort of comes to pass. And I think one of the difficulties with coalition building is that a lot of folks from immigrant communities don't understand that history, right? They don't understand that history and they just see and they just say, well, you know, we can't get along with whites. Whites don't really want us. But, you know, we're we're better than black people, though. Right. Because they've been sometimes in some ways they've been taught that. So I think that's one of the things that makes it difficult. And I guess the real question is, how do we overcome that? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we look at maybe we look at people. I know during the Vietnam War, a lot of the, the Viet Cong would tell black American soldiers they would look at them and they would say same. They would touch their skin and they would say same, same. We're saying like, don't, you know, maybe, maybe we just have to sort of broaden our, maybe we have to broaden our historical view, right? And see that white supremacy, even though it's a fairly new phenomenon in in terms of world history, it is nonetheless very effective. And, and we have to try to, you know, despite our different histories, connect around that and, and then go from there. But it's, it's a difficult project. It's so difficult. You bring up so many good points. Like even thinking about, you're right about the question of history and the fact that immigrants, I mean, even the folks that have lived here for like a long time, right? Don't necessarily know black history. They know the little bits that you learn for your citizenship exam, which is probably just that Martin Luther King lived, right? And ended racism. But the common refrain is we're a country of immigrants. And it's like, uh are we because that's some involuntary immigration in enslavement right and in the genocide of indigenous people like there's no immigration there right 
So, I mean, I think that in itself, and I think about this question of communication a lot because I feel like I've spent so much time trying to think about the perfect frames that are going to just crack the hardest eggs, right? Like that are going to win hearts and minds, change people's thoughts, you know, awaken them. And Vita, what you were saying about Dr. King and the way that he was kind of losing hope in that project too by the end of his life. Mm -hmm. I, I feel that because I think you come up against a certain point where you realize people just aren't going to go any further with you. Like that's, that's it for them. So for them, it might be enough to vote blue, right? And for them, that is perfect. Like that's enough democracy is you just vote when it's voting time and I'm a good liberal and I don't have a racist bone in my body. So we're not going to think critically about anything else that is going on in my life. And I think that's a lot of the immigrant story is this idea that I'm not personally racist, right? But uh, yeah, no, I don't hang out black people. I don't know any black people. So I think that that's a real struggle. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I think the other thing that I think about a lot is, again, with the question of communication, we say so much, you know, black folks shouldn't have to educate other people. And I think about it a lot because we're all at such different points in our journeys of actually understanding what the depth of the inequality, the depth of the power and how it shapes everything around us. And sometimes I worry that because we're stuck in so many different places along that journey, that it, it does become really hard to have a true solidarity politics where you aren't just spending your whole time trying to educate people who may just give up and leave you know, your organization or your coalition anyway. So that's why I've kind of turned toward, you know, first of all, people like me need to collect our people. So that is the first thing is black Americans should not have to be educating them. I should be the one talking to, you know, Iranian Americans, for example, about the anti-blackness within our communities. But the other piece is, you know, I think I don't want to say we give up on people, but maybe that's how I feel. If I'm being honest, is that we do we give up on the people who are not going to come along and we're wasting our energy and we focus on the people that we can draw in and build power with. And those are the people that, first of all, may not have anything to lose at this point or are willing to give things up because they do believe that it will yield more liberation down the line. I have a lot to say um, on your point and to your initial question and everything. I thought it was a great question. I love the answers that um, both uh, Tim and Jason gave, especially um, the idea around communication. I thought was really on point, Jason, um, in that conversation. I do think there is an issue around communication. Number one, I don't think we know enough about each other's histories anyway. Um, whether you're talking about immigrant history or second generation, third generation history. Um, like I had to learn from my Japanese American friends about the history of, I'm going back to LA because LA is my reference point for like everything, but but the history of Japanese American and African American relations, which is has a strong history in LA. Um, and I didn't know about that. Um, meaning that there was actual solidarity there. And people don't know that. Like there are black kids going to Japanese schools, kind of. Um, and when Japanese Americans went to internment camps, um, there are black Americans who were keeping their stuff for them and things like that. And there's a lot of that history in the Crenshaw area that most people know about now, thanks to rest in peace Nipsey Hustle. Um, but then there's and there's also the fact that there's a, particularly with black and Latino history, there's a lot we don't even know about our history and how it crossed paths. Um, both during slavery and before slavery. Um, most people don't even know, like have no clue. We don't even know about 
the Moorish Empire and its relationship um, to the Americas. We have we don't we don't even have that conversation. And these are things that I'm not making up. Now I tell people this: look at the Costa paintings. You can Google them, and you'll see there's groups. There's a group called Los Moros, and there's a group called Los Negros on the Costa paintings, and they're in different levels and you can see all that stuff right this is during slavery this is during in the americas there's there's a relationship um there that we don't talk about is my point that there's a history that we don't even know about because there's a purpose and there's a reason around there's a reason we don't know these things right there's a reason why um the ways in which other groups have also um, been through certain things is not taught in the black community and the reason why i know it isn't is because you go online and they'll say they'll talk as though other groups, you know, are perfect. Look at the relationships in the Japanese community. They don't, you don't know what it's like in those relationships. I work with uh, Latina feminists and things that they go through in their relationships. It's not ideal because of how, you know, black, for some reason, black people think every other group has some ideal relationship. I don't know why. It's something if you go online, they, we, there's this belief, you know, Latinos do it this way. They're perfect. But white people do it. It's not. And I don't know why they think this. But a lot of it is because of this mythology that we have. We don't talk about our history. We don't talk about our struggles. So I do think that lack of communication with each other is a big is a big issue. And I'm not speaking as a person who grew up as an activist and an organizer in South Central Los Angeles. I've talked about this on the show before. I grew up as an activist and organizer with Black Brown Solidarity, um, the, both the Black and Brown Solidarity organization. Right. This is part of what the work was we were doing. Um, and it was founded before I got involved. It was work that uh, was around Black and Brown Coalition. It was founded by a black and la a black person, and a, a black woman, and a Latina woman. And they and they and I interviewed one of them, the Latina, and she said people were dead against Black and Brown solidarity in South Central. They were dead against it, even though they live in the same community. It had never been done before. No one had ever seen it before. But that was the only way they were able to win certain campaigns in South Central. There were small campaigns on as far as you know grand scale but for the communities it was huge right such as after the 92 uprising slash riots we'll call them um they stopped over 200 liquor stores from being rebuilt in south central and we and mind you there was a high concentration of liquor stores in south central versus any other part of the city right people don't talk about that, that was actually what happened during what people call the riots right it was specific businesses that were getting burned out. We're just randomly burning down our community as the myth likes to go, right? That took Black Brown Solidarity to keep those nuisance businesses from being reopened. There were, and on top of other things that they fought together for. So I grew up in that. I feel like in order for those movements to be successful, there has to be a connection in the present. Not so much um, hoping that we can change people's minds around everything else i think it has to be this is what we're both dealing with right now and we and we ally around that because at the end of the day i think it's gonna i think with specifically with black americans there's so much we have to do internally as a group that it's kind of hard to partner with other groups on their specific issues when we have our own issues we have literally so much we have to work on just as far as our ability to organize and strategize. And I think we're still sort of disorganized. Um, so it's kind of hard to have that, but I, but if there's a specific issue that's tangible that we can work together on that affect, that impacts all the groups that are, you know, having that issue. Yeah. That's a little bit easier. 
Um, but I think it's a lot harder when it's just like, hey, just support me just because. That's a little bit harder. Um, because also I think keeping this in mind, I don't want, I don't think this myth should go forward either that people were anti-black when they got to America. Because we could look at some of these countries, how do they treat the black folks in their home countries or the darker skinned people in their home countries, right? So some of the anti-black or how, how do they view black people on TV before they even get over here, right? So some of this anti-blackness happened before they, they, they were even here in the first place. So, or, or systemic within just their own cultures as well, right? Look at a lot of Latin American countries. I didn't know there were black folks in Colombia until my friends who went to Colombia came out. It was full of black folks over there because of the images that we're given here in America, right? Um, my point, just I know it's a long way to answer your question. But my point is just, I think solidarity is a challenge, but I do think that it's, I do think communication is important. So I do think that needs to be there. But I also think that there has to be specific issues that we're working together on. I think police brutality um, is one of those things that's really difficult because I think as long as people feel like still deep down, as long as it's happening to black men is justified, we're not gonna have the true solidarity. I think you'll have symbolic solidarity because it looks good. As long as it's a dead black man, I think it looks good. But I think as far as systemic change, it's a little bit harder because when policies go forward to try to change that, people automatically get scared because they still think of the black man as a boogeyman. So that's my answer to your question. <laughs> well, Vita, listen, that is, I like what you said, Vita, because we're never going to know each other fully enough, historically or otherwise. I mean, if we undertook that project in order for there to be solidarity, we would never get anywhere, right? Because the histories are so complicated. The cultures are so complicated. I like what you said about starting in the here and now. What are the, in what ways is systemic oppression affecting both of us? And and let's let's start from there. I am, I am vigilant. I'm looking at the time and I know Haj, you you uh you have to you have to run you know what this means Haj, is that you must come back for may i i i feel like we have so much more to talk about like this is the <laughs> tip of the iceberg all right that's how i feel because i didn't yeah. even get into the community part and how black folks all across all black communities all across the country are celebrating king day with their parades and festivals and I, I wanted to get into that, but we have there's so much I want to talk about. I know. Wait, no, you're totally right. I was going to say, we didn't even talk about like the consumerization. It's like yes. a holiday weekend. It's like, let's go buy a new mattress for Martin Luther King Day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the King Day sales. Well, yeah, I, I want I want to be respectful of your time. And I'm I'm so grateful. And, and I know Vita is too. And as is Jason that you took time out of your busy schedule to join us to, uh, tonight to record this uh, this very special episode. You are our first guest of 2024. And so we want to just uh, just thank you for that. Aj, if, if you could, I want to ask you to do two things. Uh, one, if you could leave our listeners with any parting words of wisdom about how to maybe better celebrate the King holiday. And two, if you could tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and, and, and give up, give us some of your social media 
contact information. So if you could do that, that would be fabulous. Yes. Well, so first of all, I'm the one who's grateful. This has been so lovely. And that's why I'm coming back. <laughs> and, you know, there's so much I could say as a wrap up our King combo. But one of the lines I've been thinking about a lot lately is something King said when he said, we don't make history, we're made by history. And what he meant by that was that we don't understand just how much our lives are shaped by the past. And I think it also speaks to how much we do need to situate ourselves in these larger structures and social forces to understand how we're interconnected. And I think for the folks in this conversation, that is not a challenge. But I do think for the rest of us who are out here living our individual lives day to day, remembering just how much we are actually linked with every human in this world is really powerful and can be a way to help us not only feel less alone, but also help us think about how we can be in community beyond our small bubbles. So you can find me on social media on my website, www.hajaryazdiha.com. And then also on Instagram at Prof Hajar Yazdiha. And then also on Twitter at Haj Yazdiha. All right. All right. Vita, where can they find you at, girl? Okay, there we go. I don't know why. I just don't want to unmute after Hodge speaks. It's like, no, nah, let Hodge keep talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you can find me on Instagram, Vita Star, V I D A S T A R R. You can also find me on Twitter at Life Star Media. That's only with one R. And um, yeah, as long as I want y'all finding me for now. But um, I just want to say real quick, Haj, it was such a pleasure and an honor. I probably got so excited. Forgot this wasn't even my show. Um, <laughs> Vita, so we're going to hang out. I'm like, I'm <laughs> so excited we connected. We're going to hang out. I yeah, knew that absolutely. already. I knew that. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> I already knew that. <laughs> Next month, uh, I'm speaking at a church in Compton for Black History Month. So I'm coming. So maybe the three of us can have Yes. Not oh, fair. Not Jason. Jason, you got to come back to LA. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it was great having you here. It was, I mean, it was definitely an honor to speak with you. Every, and I wanted to agree with something um, Tim said earlier. Reading your work, reading your book, um, it's just like funny because it's like, it's like I'm screaming in my head. Yes, that's exactly what I've been saying all this time. I'm so glad there's a professor who's saying it because I definitely did not do all the research and link the articles and <laughs> references and citations. I didn't do any of that shit. I just knew I was right. Um, and nobody, that doesn't necessarily fly. So hence why I'm not in academia, but um, I just run my mouth for a living and get to interview people like you who do that, who do that wonderful work. Um, but it is uh, a definite honor. And I, and I thank both you and Jason, Tim, Tim and Jason, for letting me be here um, to speak about this topic with you. And of course, Jason and Tim, it's an honor always to be a part of Motown Philly. Um, I'm like the LA um, liaison, for, <laughs> the LA correspondent that they let me join sometimes. And I enjoy every time I'm here. You guys are wonderful. Um, I love you guys and I can't wait to hang out with you in person, Taj, because you're dope. Same. Your social media info, girl. How can folks contact you? I, I did that one. I said Vita Star at Instagram, B I D A S T A R R, and on Twitter, Life Star Media. I'll be saying some wild shit on Twitter, y'all. So just bear with me because I'll be talking about dating and 
because I just I be trolling. So just beware. Don't take everything I say it. seriously because I be trolling. Tim will tell you because people say ridiculous relationship shit and I just be trolling because it's just nonsense. So when I said, I think I said recently, somebody said, what is the advantage of dating you? And I said, you get to buy me things and take me places. So that's kind of where <laughs> that's how I troll. Don't take it too seriously. <laughs> Love it. The one and only Vita Star. Love Girl, it. You know how glad you we are that you joined us tonight. Yes. Hey, where can they find you at, brother? Talk Yo, to you me. guys can find me where I hang out the most on Instagram at the Speakers Mechanic. That's at the Speakers Mechanic. You can also find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn at uh, Jason Halls Communication Skills Coach, where I help leaders, professionals, entrepreneurs alike. Get out their words in conversation, whether they're doing presentations or just having to cut to have conversations better with their client avatar. Get at me, Tim. Where can we find you at? Hey, y'all can find me on Instagram at a good golden man. You can find me on X, formerly known as Twitter at DRTJ Golden ESQ. And last but certainly not least, y'all can find me. On Facebook at Tim Golden, three things in life are certain, death, taxes, and yours truly is the only black man in Walla Walla, Washington named Tim Golden. I guarantee it. You can take that check to the bank and it won't bounce. As they say in Memphis, you finna get paid. <laughs> Thanks to, again, to Dr. Hajar Yazdiha. Please, 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 by all means, go to Amazon and purchase her book, The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. You will not be disappointed. Where else are you going to get content like this on the King holiday but the Motown Philly podcast? Nowhere. Listen, Vita, Hodge, you're coming back. We can't wait to have you back. I cannot wait. Jay, listen, man, you know I love you, boss. I know you all the way there in Memphis, but I feel like you in the same room with me. <laughs> yes. Listen. It's been rich. Until next week, we are out of here like Vladimir. Peace. <laughs>